I'd invite you to take a Bible with me this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, the second chapter this morning, we'll begin in just a moment at verse 11. If you were with us last week, we are in week two of seven weeks in the book of Ephesians. These first three weeks were in the first three chapters where Paul is telling us and reminding us of the story, the story, that shapes our life. And so this morning we'll see another aspect of that story and next week as well. But then we get four weeks in chapters four, five, and six where the first verse of chapter four begins, therefore, and then we get three chapters of therefore. Therefore, this is how you should live. If that is your story, then this is how we should live our lives together. Um, I want to remind you a little bit about last week's story. So last week, Paul tells us this is your story. And it's really rooted in three key words. And so if you have your Bible, just turn a page over to Ephesians 1. And hopefully, if you're with us, you circled these three words. That story is rooted in verse 5, in that you are adopted. That God has made us his own, brought us into God's family. We have become God's children. And verse 7, we have been ransomed like the Israelites who were set free from bondage to the Egyptians. We have been set free from the bondage of sin and death, Paul says. We have been brought into this new creation, into this new life. We have been adopted and ransomed. And then verse 11, and we have also received an inheritance. Not just a land like Paul and his people had expected, but the whole creation, Paul says, the whole world. That is the inheritance, all things made new. It is what we live into now because it has already begun, but it is the hope to which we point and direct our lives. That is our story. This morning we come to a second aspect of the story. So if you have your Bible, let's look together at Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 11. And if you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. So remember that once you were Gentiles by physical descent who were called uncircumcised by Jews who were physically circumcised. At that time, you were without Christ. You were aliens rather than citizens of Israel and strangers to the covenants of God's promise. In this world, you had no hope and no God. But now, thanks to Christ Jesus, you who were so far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one new person out of the two groups, making peace. He reconciled them both as one body to God by the cross, which ended the hostility to God. And when he came, he announced the good news of peace to you who are far away from God and to those who were near. We both have access to the Father through Christ by the one Spirit. So now you are no longer strangers and aliens. Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people and you belong to God's household. As God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone The whole building is joined together in him and it grows up into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you into a place where God lives through his spirit. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
So last week as we looked at chapter one, I would argue that what we get, what we see is a kind of Paul articulating our story in regards to kind of the vertical relationship between us and God. You've been adopted, you've been ransomed, you have this inheritance. All of that relates to how you and I relate to God. So as Paul likely thinks back to the Jewish story that shapes his own understanding of the world, when he thinks about the Genesis story in particular, it is a story about Adam and Eve living in harmony with God, but all of that being broken. But now, Paul says, our story is that brokenness has been healed in the blood of Christ, and we are reconciled to God, ransomed to have this inheritance. The vertical relationship has been healed, has been made new. But now, in verse 11 of the second chapter, you could argue that Paul moves from the vertical story to the horizontal story. Because the story is not just about us and God. It is about now how this relationship with God changes everything in our relationship to each other. I mention him often. You know that I'm a fan, especially in the work of Paul, uh, by a theologian by the name of N.T. Wright. Um, N.T. Wright has written these two massive volumes on Paul. Uh, the fastest, I joke, the fastest 1,100 pages of reading on Paul you'll ever do. Um, really exciting, fun stuff. He's written all sorts of books out of those two major volumes. But I remember in reading those volumes that Wright will say something that just shocked me when I read it and still shocks me, that as he worked through Paul's literature, that we think of Paul as the apostle of salvation. So if you think about Paul, most people think about Paul as talking about that vertical relationship between us and God. But Wright makes the point that Paul spends almost five times more, or spills five times more ink, has more to say about unity, five times more to say about the unity of the church than about salvation in Christ. Wow. Now for Paul, our story is not just incomplete, but we have missed the huge part of the story if we end with the vertical aspect of the story without moving into the horizontal part of the story. And Paul, in this kind of complex way, is saying, if I think about my heritage and faith, I was a Jewish person, Paul would say, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I followed Torah. I followed law. But now Paul realizes a couple of things about the law. As he was obeying the law, the law couldn't do what it was kind of hoping to do, which is make a people holy. In fact, Paul found that the two things the law kind of did rather than make us holy was either make us really legalistic, in which case we constantly were following these laws, but it didn't necessarily change our hearts. And so we encounter people, for example, in the New Testament who are really good law followers, but not very good people. Or we found that every time we went to the law, because we couldn't keep the whole law, the the law just keeps condemning us as lawbreakers. And so for Paul, the Jewish people who inherited the law and lived by the law found that the law, rather than being a gift, ended up being a kind of burden that they were bound to. But thanks be to God, Paul will say, Christ has come to set us free from the law. But here's the problem. The law was not only then kind of a bind to the Jews, but it was the dividing line between Jews and Gentiles. So it in some sense bound those who were in the law, but it excluded those who were outside of the law. And so the argument Paul's making here is now that the law has been put to death through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, now no longer are we bound to the law, but now that dividing line between Jew and Gentile no longer exists. 
And now, key verses, if you have your text still open, the verses you should really underline this morning are verses 14 and 15. He's our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With this body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one new person out of the two groups making peace, one new humanity. Now, if you'll hang with me for just a minute, what's wild when you read Paul is that, that's crazy to think that that dividing line between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. But the more Paul thinks about it and lives into it, the more Paul realizes, oh, wait a minute, time out. It's not just that boundary that has been broken down, but he is our peace who has broken down every wall. And so Paul begins to realize, oh, if I go back to that Genesis story, this story is not just about brokenness between me and God or humankind and God in this vertical relationship, but this is a story about after they leave the garden, Adam and Eve have all sorts of dysfunctions going on. There was a harmony in their relationship before, but now they're in some serious therapy. There's all sorts of dividedness there. And then they have kids who really don't like each other and one kills the other. And there's this kind of building up of violence and brokenness that ultimately then leads to the Tower of Babel where the whole map is divided. And there's all sorts of dividing walls in the world. And so Paul will say, he is our peace who's broken down this barrier between Jew and Gentile. But then in Galatians, he'll say this, but now in Christ Jesus, there's no longer Jew or Greek. But now the wildest thing has happened. As this body lives together in the spirit, I discovered that there are folks who come to Christ, some quite wealthy, some quite poor. Some for whom the current system really works, some for whom they are enslaved to the current system. And they're divided, they live in different neighborhoods. They live in all sorts of ways that say to them regularly, you are that person and you are that kind of person. But in Christ, that divide between slave and free has been eliminated. Are you with me, Philemon? I'm sending you a letter about Onesimus. For there is new creation. There is now no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free. And now the craziest thing in such a patriarchal culture, a world in which Paul was raised where only the men were in the synagogue. Paul begins to realize, oh, in Christ Jesus, that brokenness back at the garden that so divided men and women, that too is being eliminated. So now we can say there's no longer male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul can do crazy things like let women in church and then they start speaking. Pretty soon they start preaching, proclaiming the resurrection. Are you with me? And so Paul sees this trajectory that here is this people that are being formed and their unity, the way in which the dividing walls are coming down and a whole new people are being formed, that is very much part of the story. And those people embody the reality of this new creation in the world in the way that they are united together. And Paul illustrates this then with two images, pretty typical for him. One is the image of the body. The body that has all sorts of parts, but Christ is the head and we are interconnected with each other. 
Another image that's really quite radical for Paul in his context, a new temple. For Paul, the temple was that place where where if there is a location of the new creation in the world, it's there in the Holy of Holies where heaven and earth are joined together. But now in Christ, all of that has been broken open. The, The dividing line, literally the curtain that divides has been torn in two. All of that has now broken wide open. And now Paul will say, now we are a temple. And we are the the bricks of that temple connected to each other on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And so these images of body and temple become the way in which Paul begins to imagine what this means, this new reality of this people in the world. And so this morning, I want to think with you just two or three things about some implications of that. That this unity, this Christian embodied unity, and this is important, is not the elimination of diversity, but is more often than not a celebration of it. We've talked about this before, but it's important. If we think about Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, that story opens in unity. They're together, but it's unity and uniformity. They speak the same language. They're working on the same project. In fact, you could argue it's unity, but it's kind of oppressive. We all have to be the same. And so you could read the story as though God's judgment is not just a judgment on their arrogance, but it's a kind of judgment of grace that says, we need more than one kind of food in the world. More than one kind of music, more than one kind of culture and celebration. And so this judgment of grace divides all those nations. But in Acts chapter 2, which is in many ways is a kind of reversal of the Tower of Babel, we get unity, but the powerful thing, as we've talked about so often in Acts chapter 2, is that we don't get unity through uniformity, but we get all of these people gathered together in Jerusalem, and when the Spirit comes, they find unity in the Spirit, but they are really different than each other. And so when Peter proclaims this message As I've argued with you, I I don't think the miracle at Pentecost is so much about speaking, it's about hearing. That Peter's sermon is recorded, and so it's likely that Peter preaching in Aramaic is preaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the lordship of Christ over all creation. And as he's preaching it, Parthians, Medes, Eliamites, people from all sorts, all places in Mesopotamia hear that gospel in their own language. But this is why that's important. Their diversity is not eliminated But what Paul is now celebrating is when you come to church, there's now no longer Jew nor Greek, but that doesn't mean there's not part of the church that's going, (laughs) right? Another part of the church is, I don't know what Gentiles do. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Right? Like there's still Jews and Gentiles. Potlucks are just way better than they used to be. And it's not as though those economic divides have been fully broken. In fact, part of the sharing of the church with each other is a recognition that there is still in the not yet of the new creation this continued fragmenting of haves and have-nots. How do we learn to love and care for each other across those divides? 
doesn't mean there aren't men and women still in church. It just means now there's a new relationship, a new reality of the ways in which we care for each other with dignity and, and foster the giftedness of each other. That's really challenging, by the way. For it's a lot easier to be church when we're all the same. But one must question, when we are all the same, are we really the church? But that means, and I, I wish I had a long time today, maybe sometime we'll do this. But I wish I had a whiteboard up here and we could kind of go text by text where Paul constantly gives instructions about how there are moments where the mature, those who've kind of gr grown in some sense, maybe even those who are in the majority or those who have power, because the diversity and the unity is so important, Paul, in all sorts of circumstances, begins to talk about how those people must in some sense empty themselves of those things for the sake of the people who are being united in the diversity. Let me give you just a quick example. In Romans, one of the huge conflicts is meat sacrificed to idols. And so you have these two groups of people in the church at least. But you have people who, who really like barbecue and who think about hamburgers and they are mature Christians who know that these festivals that go on, that offer this meat, sacrifice to idols, those idols are nothing. And if anything, in some sense, there's a kind of thanks, thankfulness to the God who created it all anyway. And it doesn't bother me in the least to go buy meat in the market that's been offered to idols. It does nothing to hinder my spiritual life. I'm able to give God thanks for it. But I had these brothers and sisters who perhaps are fresh out of pagan life, who when they go to the festival and they smell the ribs on the grill, they not only smell that aroma, but they are reminded of the life they left behind and they're drawn back into those temptations and all of the brokenness that was part of that life before. And because of that, they just can't. They cannot participate in that. And so Paul says to that church, you know what you should do? Tell those weaklings, grow up, eat, and show how mature you are by having barbecue sauce on the corners of your mouth when you come to church. No, right? Paul says, listen, I am not arguing that you don't have the right to do that. I'm saying to you, for the sake of unity in a diverse church, give up that right for the sake of that weaker sister or brother. I want to cause a little trouble and say, it's been great to be your pastor. I want to say, part of the reason why still we struggle so much with reflecting the kind of diversity and unity is because we are shaped by an imagination that says, hey, there's more of us than there are of you. And so the way we should operate is the way that keeps most of us happy. And so not just here, but all across the world, 
groups who are in the majority culture don't feel like they're building walls because they're saying to people of other races or cultures, ethnicities, they're saying to them, oh, we welcome you as long as you worship just like all us white folk. You're more than welcome to be here. We're glad to have you apart as long as you can kind of dress like us and fit in like us. And we're not trying to exclude you. And part of the challenge that the church faces in this is for Paul, the only way to ever kind of get to that place of unity and diversity is for moments where for the sake of the inclusion of others, we no longer do what we think we ought to do. <laughs> so think even just about generational challenges in the church. For generations, we have said, as old people, of which I am now a part, we want you kids here. Just sing our stuff. You're welcome. We'll give you a front seat even. Behave. Right? Let me say, by the way, Today, now that I'm old, in a culture that prizes youthfulness and which from the moment you can buy an iPhone on, everything in your world kind of orients around you, honestly, in some ways, youth have all the power today. And it's easy for youth to say, all you old people are welcome, just do what we do. And you know what happens is we have old people churches and medium people churches, maybe I'm part of that group, and the young people church, right? And we have churches with people of certain colors and cultural practices. It's not that we're unwelcoming. You're welcome as long as you do what we do. But a church that finds unity and diversity has a greater commitment, a maturity, a, a willingness of the strong members like Paul will write in Philippians 2 to say, I have the power, I'm going to give it up for the sake like Christ gave up Christ's self for us. Also, unity built on a cornerstone. Now, let, let, me, let me go back for just a second and say, because that's how body diversity works, right? I mean, Paul can say, listen, we could all be the eye, but that'd be kind of creepy. And who would hear? We could all be the right hand, but that would be very boring applause sessions. And we would need some feet eventually. And so if that kind of unity and diversity takes a kind of love and commitment and mutual respect, that is hard. And when Paul talks about the temple, a temple that's unified on the prophets and the apostles and built on the cornerstone of Christ, I am I think that takes a lot of work and prayerful conversation about what's essential and non-essential to Christian faith and living. You see, unity and holiness are really difficult partners. Unity is easy. We just don't care about anything anymore and we just tolerate each other. Holiness without unity is really easy too. We just keep dividing every time we have disagreements with each other. Both of those are easy. But unity built on the cornerstone of Jesus, a holy people, that takes work and conversation. 
There's a quote that we love to ascribe to John Wesley, although he borrowed it from somebody else. Beloved, to write in unity, or in essentials, unity, and non essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity. You heard that line? It's one of my favorites. I quote it in class all the time. It is so hard. Because what is essential to me may not be essential to Tanya, and what is essential to Tanya may not be essential to me. We've known each other a long time, and I can testify to that. Just kidding. Now, it's hard, isn't it? And one of the things we have to begin to do then is we begin, have to hear each other and know each other's stories. One of my favorite parts about this text, if you still have it open, is verse 11. I love what the Common English Bible does. Paul says, so remember that once you were Gentiles by physical descent who were called, and I love that they put this in quotes. I used air quotes before. But Paul says, you who were called uncircumcised by Jews. Now you're not excited about that. That was really funny to me. You're those people when we got together, we would talk about the uncircumcised. You know them, those people, right? You know, the, one of the ways it's really easy to create unity is unity around the people that we call people names. More often than not, when we find unity as a country, we find unity because we don't like somebody and we, like, we don't like them together. And it's easiest to not like them if we don't know them and we can just call them names or objectify them or give them really bad derogatory names. And Paul is saying, this was great when we used to just think of you as the uncircumcised, but now we know you as Cornelius. And Cornelius' family. And we have to know one another and know each other's stories. And we, we're gonna need to focus and celebrate on places of unity and see our places of differences as opportunities for growth. I, uh, some of you know, a couple, a few months ago now, started a podcast they call New Creation Conversations, and it's really just an excuse for me to talk to some of my scholarly friends once a week. And a lot of the people that I've interviewed over these last few months are Nazarenes, who I mostly agree with. But I've been interviewing a few of my friends from some other traditions and had a wonderful conversation recently with my, friend, my Pentecostal friend and who's done amazing work on the Holy Spirit. But I've gotten a couple of emails, and they're nice. They weren't mean, but there are a couple of emails that kind of say, I'm kind of surprised you interviewed fill-in-the-blank. Do you know what they say about X? My response is usually something like this. Yeah, I know what they say about X. And we have some really good conversations every once in a while about X. But have you heard what they say about why? Oh, they talk about why so well. The kind of unity that happens that is centered on that kind of life has to have robust conversations. This does not mean that everything is non-essential. It means that we have to have thoughtful, meaningful, friendly, I know your name, you know my name, you know our history, I know your history kinds of conversations about what is meaningful in following Christ and what is essential and what is non-essential. And it means that there are times when we won't find unity. Paul and Barnabas will break up. 
but they do that with a heavy heart, with grief more than anger. A reminder that the kingdom of God is not yet here, and it's hard for us to find that unity, but we are praying that Christ will will be found in us and this unity will begin to be achieved. To live into that vision of unity, it will require a radical conversion. It will it will require a radical conversion because I'm convinced that we actually have learned to live into our sort of individualistic, competitive, diverse world in ways that actually kind of work for us. It's kind of worked for us that we see the other churches in town as competition, especially if competition's in your top five. We can destroy those Baptists. <laughs> we will outgrow the Pentecostals. We'll only have one arm in the air, not two, but we will outgrow them, right? Like in some ways, we have fostered this disunity. And so it's going to take a different level of imagination for us to understand that for Paul, the brokenness of our Life together is not the way God wants it, but that there is a unity among those who call Christ Lord that we are striving towards and praying towards and working towards, and that should shape our imagination. To say it as plainly as I can, there are about three billion people in the world who call Christ Lord. The world is not worried about three billion people who are divided from each other. Paul has this imagination that says, could you imagine three billion people who call Christ Lord and call each other brother and sister and who see that baptismal commitment to Christ as primary above all of their other identities and are striving together for the name of Christ to be known in the world? Principalities and powers, that would make them nervous. but it's gonna take a different imagination. The only way I know how to describe it is, I, I have finished, and that's the right word, I have finished, I think, four marathons in my life. I have not run them, I have finished them. <laughs> I would like to finish one more before I die, but not enough to have to work at it, so I probably won't. <laughs> but, but I learned when you run a marathon, there's actually two ways to do it. And when you show up, so I've, I've run the LA Marathon and it's a lot of people, 20,000 people or so. And you show up and it's really crowded. And there are badges that you get to be in the front. And so one, one of the first years I wanted to get up near the front and somebody said, no, in the back. Because the people in the front, there's a kind of box that they put the people in the front in and they are doing something very different than the rest of us are doing. They are running the marathon right? And they put them in the front. When the gun goes off, they go running out, right? And they, they run and they have barely anything on and they're just running. And I don't want to speak ill of them, but I have this feeling that for some of them, they get to about mile 22 and there's somebody they can't catch and they're praying, oh God, have them pull their hamstring, right? Like they're, they don't want the other to finish ahead of them. It's a race, right? When you're with the other 24,000 or so, 
when the gun goes off, you do this. Like they're playing music, right? You're waving to the mayor. Kind of starting to jog by. There's El- One year I ran with the jogging Elvises, right? Like they're all in jumpsuits and it was awesome, right? And you get to mile 22 and you're not thinking, I hope to beat the person ahead of me. You're like, I hope we don't all die, right? <laughs> like, oh God, help them. And about mile 25, you're carrying each other, right? Like it's a totally different imagination. We're not in this to beat each other. We're in this to finish together. And I'm convinced that's the way the apostles think about this race that we are in. We're not in a race trying to beat one another. But we're in a race where if we don't all finish together, maybe none of us won. I want to close this morning with a Nazarene saint, Reuben Welch. This is a classic. We really do need each other. He's better known around here as Sally's brother. I'm going to ruin the end of the book for you. At the end, Reuben writes this. Let me just tell you this true thing before I stop writing. At school a few years ago, there was a summer school course in group and interpersonal relations. About a dozen people took the class, and at the end of it, they decided they wanted to do something together as kind of closing to the class. You know, they'd come to know each other, to share each other, and really be personal to each other, and break down walls and so forth. So they decided to get together and take a hike up to Henniger Flats. Now, Henniger Flats is about three miles up the side of the mountain behind the campus, and it takes about an hour and a half for anyone to make the hike. So they set the day and made the sandwiches and made the chocolate and brought the cold drinks and the backpacks and they got all gathered up for the safari and they started up the mountain together. But it wasn't long until the strong stalwart ones were up in front and the others were back in the middle and way back at the end of the line was a girl named Jane. She was struggling. At the front was Don, a big, strong, former paratrooper. He and some others, the strong ones, were up in front, and the weak ones were back in the back, way in the back, and way in the back was Jane. And Don said, it was he who told me the story, he looked back a couple of switchbacks and saw Jane, and the Lord told him that he had just better go back and walk with her. That's kind of hard on him because he has a need to be first. But he went down and started walking with Jane and the people in the level above called down, come on up, it's great up here. And Jane yelled, I don't think I can make it. And they hollered, yeah, you can. Try harder, come on up. And every time they called to her, down went her sense of worth, down went her sense of value. I can't make it. Oh yeah, you can, come on. So the strong went on ahead and the weak hung behind and there was Jane and she never made it to the top. Now look what you have. You have a group. We know each other. We like each other. We want to do this together. Let's go to Henniger Flats together. But before long, you've decided the strong and the weak, the haves and the have-nots, the ables and the unables. So what started out as a group has now become a fragmented collection. And so the strong say, you can do it. And the weak say, no, I can't. And so the strong say, try harder, which is a huge help. And she didn't make it. But thankfully, that's not the last chapter. They must have learned their lessons because they decided that was no way to end the fellowship of that class and they got together and decided to do it again. But they made some new rules. It was everybody go or nobody go. And they were all going together. So they set the day and made the sandwiches and made the chocolate and brought the cold drinks and the backpacks and they all gathered up for the safari and they started up the mountain. 
It took them four hours to make it to the top. The water was all gone, and the cold drinks were all gone, and the sandwiches were all gone, and the chocolate was all gone, and the backpacks were empty, but they made it together. Let me share with you the thing that this real-life parable has been saying to me. We have got to go together. Christian fellowship is no place for get in or get out. It's get in, get in. And if you need to slow down, you slow down. That's why it's good for us to read scripture and sing hymns together. The slow folks have to speed up and the fast folks have to slow down and we have to do it together. I know, don't you, that it was God's intention that we go together as a body. It doesn't help much for those who have made it to say to us weaklings, try harder, see I've done it, so you can make it. That makes me think of some dear old grandmother whose children are all gone, who spends all day praying and listening to holy records. That kind of dates the book, right? Saying to a young mother going out of her mind with little kids and noise, oh honey, you just need to get alone with God. Yeah, thanks a lot. I can't even get in the bathroom alone anymore. (laughs) You know something? We're all just people who need each other. We're all learning and we've all got a long journey ahead of us. We've got to go together and if it takes until Jesus comes, we better stay together, we better help each other and I dare say that by the time we get there, all the sandwiches will be gone and all the chocolates will be gone and all the water will be gone and all the backpacks will be empty. But no matter how long it takes, we've got to go together because that's how it is in the body of Christ. It's all of us in love, in care, in support, in mutuality, because we really do need each other. God, help us today. Um, I confess I do not have this imagination. I have been shaped, like many of us in this room, by an imagination that says, We are largely in competition with others we call brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all on our own and the church at best exists to holler at us and spur us on to hike on our own well. That is not the way Paul tells our story today. Paul tells a story about a people who are adopted and ransomed and who have an inheritance with you, but a people in whom you are taking a broken world and bringing peace and tearing down every dividing wall between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, between all of those walls that we build on your map, you are forming a reconciled people of peace. So convert our imagination today. Make us a body where the eye and the ear and the hand and the foot and all the other parts recognize we are so different, but we are not the body without each other. And form us into a temple brick by brick, person by person, whose foundation is the prophetic voice of the word and the teaching of the apostles, but whose cornerstone is Christ. 
as such a beautiful image and such a challenging life. But make us a people who long for you to dwell within us and for the world to see a people unified in Christ, bringing healing in a fragmented world that we just find more and more ways to be divided. Draw us together in you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you